All right, good morning. We'll get started here. So come on in, find a seat. If there's people still out uh, mingling in the hallways, go grab them and tell them that uh, we're kicking things off here. But uh, we're excited to, to see you all this morning. We're excited to be here together as we uh, really kick off our, our Christmas celebration in earnest here between this Sunday and next Sunday. Um, so this is a, a very a special morning for us here as we have international students that we're welcoming that we're hosting and also as we have our Christmas celebration with uh, our Weymouth kids and we're doing some things in the service. So we're really glad you're here. Uh, my name is Chris. I'm the pastor here. So uh, we'll get started with a, a song together in worship. But uh, before we do that, uh, it's our pattern as a church that we just spend a few moments in just quiet uh, reflection and silent prayer to prepare our hearts for worship. So please bow and pray with me. Apostle John records this vision in Revelation chapter 7. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And Father, it's with this vision in mind that we come before you this morning. We gather to praise you, remembering the hope, the promise that we have of a day to come when uh, a great multitude from every tribe and tongue and nation will, will gather together in eternal worship before you, before the Lamb. So help us to participate together in that now as we sing to you, as we uh, celebrate and remember this, uh, this Christmas season together as a church family, as we welcome friends from, from nearby, from far away. Lord, unite us together in our worship and and as we do so, help us to remember the unity that we share with other believers, other churches all over the world. A unity and a diversity that we will celebrate together as we pray to you ultimately for all eternity in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, please stand and we'll sing a song together. Come behold the wondrous mystery In the dawning of the King He the theme of heaven's praises Robed in frail humanity In our longing, in our darkness Now the light of life has come Look to Christ who condescended, took on flesh to ransom us. 
the perfect Son of Man in His living, in His suffering, never trace nor stain of sin. See the true and better Adam come to save the hellbound man, Christ the great and sure fulfillment of the Once again, let me extend a welcome to you all here. We're really, really glad you've come to join us this morning. Uh, it's a special morning, as we've said. Um, we are kicking off our celebration of Christmas. Next week is Christmas Eve, but we thought, why, not, why wait a whole week? Uh, let, let's get things started this week. But we will be gathering again next Sunday, which is Christmas Eve, which uh, we'll have our normal worship service at 1030 here, which will be more of a, a celebratory Christmas Eve service. And then uh, in the evening on the 24th, next Sunday, we will have a more uh, reflective candlelight evening service at 6 p.m. So next Sunday, we'll gather together twice, once at 10.30, and then once again at 6 p.m. to celebrate Christmas Eve together. Uh, we're also excited this morning to, to welcome several uh, international students um, from Ohio State through IFI, a ministry that we work with. So if you haven't had a chance to welcome them yet, be sure to introduce yourselves and welcome these students, these new friends, uh, old friends who are here with us. We're really glad you guys are here as well. Uh, but the thing I'm most excited about uh, this morning is to get to hear some of our, our youngest voices sing together and, and celebrate uh, Christmas with us. So I'm going to invite our, our Weymouth kids to come on up now. They've been practicing for the last, uh, I don't know, weeks, month or two on some of these Christmas songs here. So if you guys want to come on up, we'll, we'll line up here. This is our first ever Weymouth kids Christmas choir, so uh, we're excited to see what they have for us this morning. It's a little too far. You guys want to line up here? Here we go. All right, so 
<laughs> you guys want to scoot a little bit this way here? Yep, scoot over, scoot over. Okay, if you want to go to the back, so. Uh, yeah, there we go. All right, they look pretty good, right? Look pretty good, yeah. Oops. Oops. <laughs> okay, so these, our kids have a few songs for us this morning. They're also going to help us with our Advent reading for this week. So we're going to kick it off with the first reading. All right, so you want to take that, you can hold that, read that for us, and then we'll see our first song. In those days of this first registration took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So everybody went out to be registered, each to his own town. All right. Amen. Well, thank you. Well, I'll take that. And then if you want to go maybe to the end there, Katie. And then, uh, yeah, right there. Perfect. And then, all right. Let's take it away. Weymouth Kids. Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family line of David to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. All right, good job.
time came for her to give birth. Then she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Alright, so here's what's going to happen now. You guys can go and sit back with your families, and then after the service, go out to the Christmas tree in the lobby and find Miss Jen and Miss Laura, and they have uh, presents for you. So thank you guys for doing it. Can we give uh, one more hand up for our Weymouth kids, for, for Jen and Laura? Um, Alright. Well, that was amazing. Let me, uh, let me pray for us. Well, Father, we thank you for how we can... Uh, praise you young and old how we can uh, come together in all different ages and stages of life from different uh, different countries different cities different places and together we can praise you for how you have given us your son to be our savior so as we we go through this christmas season remind us anew of the, the gift you've given us in christ our savior that we can know you we can have peace with you and him that you've given us this unspeakably good gift in your son and that that gift is available to, uh, to people no matter what background, no matter how we've messed up, no matter what mistakes or, or failures are part of our story. We thank you that we can come to you in childlike faith to receive this gift of peace with you in Christ our Savior. 
in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. We'll, we'll respond to that. We'll stand and we'll sing another song together as a congregation. So please stand and sing with us. the slides to come up. <laughs> okay, you can watch the candles. Ooh. All right, well, now that the expectations have been set so high, um, <laughs> let's, uh, let's see if the adults can do any better. <laughs> We're going to sing uh, There is a Redeemer. There is a Thank you that uh, 
that because of that we can celebrate or we can we can celebrate with the children and we can we can all have fun lord knowing that that our savior had had been delivered to us lord we thank you for just that message of of your son and the power behind it lord, i pray that uh even as we're we're going through a, a book like Micah, that we would be able to see Jesus in that, Lord. I pray that you would give us your wisdom um, now as we dive into the word. I pray all this in your name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. And I invite you to uh, turn in your Bibles to the book of Micah. And we have been going through uh, the book of Micah this uh, Christmas season. Uh, Micah is one of the 12 minor prophets in the Old Testament. Um, so if you're looking for Micah, it follows the book of Jonah. It's towards the end of the Old Testament, towards the end of the Bible. Kind of looks like this in my Bible if you're, well, I guess for you it would look like this. Um, if you're looking for the book of Micah, you can kind of go in that general direction and you'll find it. We've uh, made our way through the first three chapters here. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll look at chapter four together this morning. And I got to say, it takes uh, a lot of the pressure off not to be uh, that now I don't have to worry about being the loudest Durban uh, to stand on the stage this morning. So that's really nice. Um, so I appreciate uh, the opportunity. <laughs> appreciate the opportunity to follow up uh, my own daughters here and uh, not live up to their expectations. So that they've set. So that's cool. But uh, also as a thing about Christmas celebration this morning, uh, one thing I forgot to mention is that uh, after the service we'll be having some Christmas cookies, hot chocolate in the community room. So we invite you to stick around, uh, tell the kids what a great job they did. And if you have any questions about anything that's been sung or that will be shared this morning, we'd love to, to talk with you and welcome you as well. So be sure to take advantage of that after the service this morning. And now let me read for us Micah chapter 4. Verse 1, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains. It shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples, and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. For they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who are cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it shall come, the former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished that pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There 
you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, Let her be defiled, and let her eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat and put in pieces many peoples, and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. Amen. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Well, Father, we come to you now, the Lord of the whole earth. And we ask you to speak to us through your word, to give us receptive minds and hearts to understand it, to be moved by it. Soften our hard hearts, show us anew the glory and the wonder of your restoration, of your redemption in Christ our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, there was one year for Christmas uh, where for Christmas I received an empty box. I once got an empty box for Christmas. Right? When I was younger, my brother and I were kids. There was one Christmas where uh, we opened on Christmas morning this awesome, this big present, this big box. And we opened it up and saw on the box that it was this giant, awesome toy castle. And when we opened the box itself, we saw that it was empty. It was empty. There was nothing inside of it. Suddenly, the joy of Christmas morning had turned to shock and disappointment and even despair in our young minds. But then what happened was, is our parents then let us down into our playroom in the basement. And there they showed us that they had actually, the night before, put together the whole castle in immaculate detail with all its, all its figures and all its parts in a, in a grand display for us to play with ready on Christmas morning. And so what had seemed like empty disappointment was immediately replaced with joy and surprise that was even greater than anything we had anticipated that morning. And I thought of that this week because sometimes we go through the Christmas season, sometimes we go through life, and it feels like we've been given an empty box. It feels like there was so much uh, promise, there was so much expectation, but in the end it all feels empty. It all feels disappointing or even destructive. Our own mistakes or the mistakes of others or even just the hardships of life, they leave us disappointed, they leave us broken, even close to despair. And if you ever felt that during Christmas, or if you ever felt that in your life, then know this morning that you are not alone. Because this is exactly how Micah's listeners would have felt at the end of Micah chapter 3. Because for, the, for three chapters here, the prophet Micah, he's been bringing God's indictment against his own people. He has been declaring to them God's judgment for their sin, for their idolatry, and their injustice. Those who had received the promise of God to, to be his people, they were now hearing that God was going to judge them. He was going to lead them into exile for their sin. It was their own failure, their own mistakes, their own trust in other gods, their own oppression of their neighbors that was going to lead God to bring other nations like the Assyrians to come in and conquer them and send them out into the judgment of exile. God promised that he was going to remove them from the land. He was even going to what, take away his temple 
from its holy mountain. Uh, That Jerusalem, that the mountain of the Lord would be emptied of his glorious presence and justice. This has been the promise of the first three chapters of the book of Micah. But then we get to chapter 4, which declares to us that this empty box of judgment isn't the end of the story. That God is actually working to build something for his people that they never expected. Something far greater, far more wonderful than they could have ever anticipated. That God is working to bring about a greater restoration than they ever could have imagined. A restoration not just for the people of Judah, but for all nations. And this restoration is going to begin with the rescue, with the redemption of a remnant, a remnant of God's people. And so for us then in Micah 4, in the midst of a fallen world filled with division, with disaster, with disappointment, this text declares to us the good news that restoration comes through redemption. Restoration comes through redemption. And we'll talk about what that means. We'll see how this argument unfolds in the text by looking at two promises this morning. Two promises. First, the promise of restoration for the nations. And secondly, the promise of redemption for a remnant. That's what we see in this chapter. First, uh, the promise of restoration for the nations. And then secondly, the promise of redemption for a remnant. So look with me at the first five verses where we see uh, the restoration of the nations. As you look at these verses, we want to remember that any time we read a text, a passage of Scripture, we always want to pay attention to what is going on around that text, what's happening before and after that particular text that we are reading. This is what we call uh, a passage's literary context. What is going on in the, 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 the chapters before, the chapter after. And when we pay attention to the literary context of chapter 4, we find something really interesting, really striking. When we look at this literary context, we see that the, at the end of chapter 3, God promised that Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. And when Micah mentions here the mountain of the house of the Lord, he's talking about the mountain, the hill in Jerusalem upon which stood the temple. Upon which stood the temple of the Lord, the place where God's glory dwelt in the midst of his people. Micah at three ends, as God is promising this judgment for his people, he promises that this mountain will be emptied. That God is going to remove his temple from Jerusalem. He's going to remove from them the place where his glory dwells. But then when we turn to chapter 4, one thing we notice right away is the repetition of the word mountain. That's another thing we want to pay attention to when we read our Bibles. We want to look for repeated words, transitional words. And we see this word mountain repeated in the first few verses of chapter 4. What's going on here is that as as Micah is starting a new oracle, a new promise in chapter 4, he is declaring that sometime in the future... This mountain that was emptied in chapter 3 is actually going to be raised up, is going to be lifted up, is going to be elevated and established as the highest of mountains. That the mountain of the house of the Lord will become a place that is elevated so high that many nations come to it to receive instruction and justice from the Lord in his house. God had promised that the temple would be taken away, but then in chapter 4 comes a new promise that the same mountain will become a mountain for the nations. 
that not only will God's presence dwell there, but the nations will be assembled there to walk in the ways of the Lord, to receive his justice. What we notice from moving from chapter 3 to chapter 4 is we notice that even though chapter 3 ends with an empty box, with an announcement that the temple will be removed, chapter 4 begins with a promise that God is actually building a greater castle. He's building a greater kingdom. He's working out a greater restoration than anyone could have imagined. He's going to bring this restoration, this justice, not just to his own people, but to all nations. Verses 3 and 4 tell us that he's going to judge between many peoples. He's going to decide disputes for the strong, for nations far away. God's instruction, his word, his justice is going to be carried out amongst the nations. And look what it says in verses 3 and 4. It says that when that happens, as the nations are assembled before the mountain, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. And it's important to see this promise here because we are living, we are living in a time where it, it's, it's unavoidable, it's impossible to avoid stories and, and images of the, the horrors and the destruction of, of war. We turn on the news at night, we go and read the news online, and it's inescapable. We see these, these pictures from, from places in, in the Middle East and in Europe, and, and we see the, the, the horrible injustices that are being carried out, the horrible effects of, of war, the tragedies that happen when nations seek to destroy each other, when they carry out acts of injustice against each other. And while these images may be more in our faces than they've ever been, the truth is that there's never been a time in human history where this kind of war and destruction, where this kind of injustice was not happening somewhere in the world. Because we live in a fallen world, in a world that's been corrupted by our own sin and our rebellion against God. And so we are often forced to face the tragedy the horrors of war and injustice. And as we do so, as we read these stories, as we see these images, as we grieve the horrible things that happen, this creates in us a longing for true peace, for true justice, for true restoration. Not just for ourselves, but for the nations. We're, we're longing for this. And we've tried in, in many different ways throughout human history to, to bring about this kind of peace and restoration. We've tried things from philosophy to technology to economics to politics to social theory to the arts. We've tried to find a variety of ways to, to bring about this peace and restoration, and yet we have yet to land on any human institution or human initiative that can bring about uh, the true peace we desire that can fully erase war and destruction and injustice. We haven't been able to figure it out, but God's promise here in verses 2 to 4 is that a day of true justice, true peace, and true restoration is coming. That what we are longing for will happen. It's a promise even for Micah's audience in Jerusalem that even as they fear the coming onslaught of the Assyrians, even as they dread the coming judgment of the Lord, God gives them a promise 
that one day peace and restoration will come, not just for Judah, but for the nations. These nations will come and be assembled at the mountain of the Lord. They will hear his instructions. They will be led by his just judgment. And this reminds us that uh, true justice, true restoration, true peace, all these things are impossible apart from the word of the Lord. Apart from the word of the Lord, it's, it's impossible. We cannot have peace and restoration if we are living against the grain of how our creator has designed things to be. If we are going against the grain of those things, if we are not living according to his instruction, according to his justice, according to his word, we'll never find the true peace and restoration we're longing for. We can't get it on our own. We can't get it apart from God and his word. But God promises here that one day, people from all nations will hear his word, will hear his instructions, will walk in his ways, will receive his judgment. And this will lead to true peace and restoration. It will lead to a day when all warfare will cease, when nations will beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. As one commentator put it, these, these very weapons that are intended for destruction will be transformed into tools for construction, for cultivation, for flourishing, as nations no longer learn war as every person is able to sit under their own vine and fig tree without fear. What's going on here is that after spending three chapters promising judgment, God is giving his people this beautiful promise of peace and of restoration. Judgment and destruction, it's not going to be the end of the story. Exile is not going to be the end of the story. These things are merely a stop along the way to a greater restoration, a greater work that God is going to bring. And so Micah declares in verse 5 that his people are going to walk in this hope, that they're going to live out of this promise of restoration, that they're going to walk in the name of the Lord who's going to bring about this peace and this justice. And this hope is not just for Micah and his people thousands of years ago, this hope is for us today as well. This hope is a promise to us that one day the restoration and justice that we all long for will come to pass. And we can live out of that. We can live out of that hope for the future. Even as we deal with the realities of destruction and war and injustice in our own day. But in order to truly do that, in order to truly live out of this hope, we need to know where this restoration truly comes from. We need to know how God has already begun this work of restoration and how we can play a part in it. We need to see how this restoration comes through redemption. And so that brings us to our second point this morning. First, restoration for the nations, and then secondly, redemption, the redemption of a remnant. In verses 6 to 13. Because in verse 6, Micah repeats this promise that in that day, at some future day, God is going to do something. The Lord is going to do something. And then the Lord declares what he's going to do. He says he's going to assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. And I will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth forevermore. See, in verses 1 through 5, God promised to assemble the nations. 
But here in verses 6 to 13, he promises to gather, to assemble a remnant of his people. When we hear that word remnant, when we talk about a remnant in Scripture, what we are talking about is simply something that remains. You can think about it this way. If you've ever made bacon, if you've ever made bacon, uh, you know that when you make bacon in a pan or on a baking sheet, that uh, it leaves a remnant of bacon grease on the pan, right? I'm not off base here. I'm not the greatest cook in the world, so I think this is a real thing that happens, right? Now, I've learned, quick PSA for you guys, that you should never pour bacon grease down the garbage disposal. Right? I learned that one the hard way, so don't do that. Um, right? But if you've done that, you know that there's, you know, when you make bacon, there's a remnant, there's something that remains, and that's that, that grease that's on the pan. And in a similar way, in verses 6 and 7, God is promising that even as he brings judgment against his people, he's going to preserve a remnant from those who were afflicted. He is going to gather those who remain on the tray of Jerusalem who have been made lame by his judgment. You see, God's promising here, he's not promising that he's going to gather a remnant of the best of the best of his people. He's not saying that he's going to assemble the avengers of Judah. He's saying he's going to assemble the afflicted of Judah. He's going to gather those who he himself drove away in judgment and exile those he himself cast off for their idolatry and their injustice. He's going to make them into a strong nation. He's going to gather them under his reign and restore to them their strength as his people. He's going to bring a new king to Jerusalem. You see, God's purpose in bringing judgment and bringing exile is not to wipe his people off the face of the earth like we might wipe grease from a pan. But no, just as some people might make bacon and, and take the grease and, and they don't throw it away. Instead, they, they take it and they store it in a jar or in a container and they save it and preserve it and they use that remnant of grease to go and make and cook something new, something even greater. In the same way, God is going to take this remnant of his people who have been refined through exile. He's going to take and preserve and gather them and use them to make something greater. Use them to build and create something new. To use them, to, to refine them, to restore them. God, he brings this judgment and exile to discipline his people. To refine them, to open their eyes to their sin, to lead them to turn back to him. Because when they do so, then he can use them to accomplish a greater restoration. And so God's word then turns to the present reality of his people in verse 9. Because the people, they're fearing the Assyrians. They're fearing this foreign enemy who is at their borders, at their gates. And as they do so, God asks them, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? And here God, God's word through Micah, it's ironically highlighting for the people that it was their king. It was their wicked kings, their wicked leaders who led Judah into this state. The state where they are racked, where pain has seized them like a woman in labor in which uh, the people of Jerusalem themselves are going to be delivered out of the city. They're going to be exiled to Babylon. But the surprising twist in the text that this has been building to is that it is in Babylon. Is it in, is it in the mix? It is in the midst of exile. It is there that God is actually going to rescue his people. It is in exile that God is going, he promises to redeem his people from the hands of their enemies. 
And when we see this word redeem in Scripture, simply what this word means is, is to buy something back, to purchase something, to redeem something, is to purchase it. See, God's people, they had sold themselves in idolatry and injustice. But God is going to work even in and through exile to redeem his people, to purchase them, to buy them back for himself. He promises to deliver them even as they are besieged by many nations. He declares that these nations who oppose them are just sheaves of wheat who have come to the threshing floor to be turned over in God's harvest. And so Micah declares in verse 13, Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for you shall beat in pieces many peoples and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. And here we come to a really shocking contrast in Micah chapter 4. Because in the first half of the chapter, God had promised that many nations would be assemb assembled together before him to receive his instruction and his justice. But then the second half of the chapter, God recognizes that many nations are assembled not at the mountain of the Lord, they're assembled against the people of the Lord. And in the first half of the chapter, God had promised that the nations would beat their swords into plowshares. But now he is promising that his people will be the ones who beat in pieces many people, who beat in pieces their opponents. So how do these promises work together? How can God be both the one who restores the nations, but also promises to defeat the nations in order to, to rescue and redeem his people? Well, what this text wants us to see is that it is by redeeming his people from the nations that God is actually going to bring restoration through his people for the nations. It is by redeeming his people from the nations that God is going to bring restoration through his people for the nations. Salvation is going to come through judgment. Restoration is going to come through redemption. And here we start to see how the book of Micah fits in with the rest of the Bible, how it fits in with the overarching storyline of Scripture. Because God's promise in verse 10 did come true. The people of Judah were exiled to Babylon. But even then in exile, God, he turned the idolatrous hearts of his people back to himself. And he eventually rescued them from exile. He allowed them to return back to Jerusalem. But even then, God's people weren't fully restored. They rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem, but it was a shell of its former self. And they had no king in Jerusalem. They were ruled and oppressed by other nations like Persia and the Roman Empire. But it was through this returned, refined remnant that God would work to, to bring a new king into the world. A king who would come to accomplish ultimate, perfect redemption and restoration. You see, it was from this remnant, this people that God preserved and delivered from exile that God would ultimately bring his own son into the world. That he would bring his own son Jesus into the world in the line of Judah, the line of David in the town of Bethlehem, the city of David. Jesus would be born to this remnant, to this besieged and oppressed people. And then Jesus would grow up and himself be besieged and oppressed by the very people he had come to save. He was exiled outside of the gates of Jerusalem. He was nailed to a Roman cross. 
And there he, the son of God, the promised king, he gave his life on the cross to pay the ultimate price of our redemption. On the cross where he himself was beaten down, where he himself was exiled, was forsaken by his father in judgment, in the judgment that we deserve, in order to bring us peace with God. You see, God, he was working through Micah. He was working through his people in the Old Testament. He was working to redeem and rescue his people from exile because through them, he was going to bring about a greater rescue, a greater redemption in Christ. So that all who trust in Christ, who come to him in faith, we can be redeemed. We can be bought back. We can be purchased from our idolatry and injustice. We can be purchased into a relationship with God. But God's plan in Christ was not just to provide individual redemption, individual salvation for sinners. His plan was to bring and is to bring a full restoration to all of creation. And we know this because Jesus didn't stay dead. Because he rose again and he rose again in a restored, glorified body. And his resurrection is the first fruits of restoration. His his resurrection is the first step in the new life he has come to bring to the whole world. And the fullness of this restoration is is promised for us at the end of the Bible. In the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter chapter 21. So I invite you to turn there to Revelation chapter 21, where the apostle John, in, in exile himself, he receives a vision of the new heaven and the new earth. He receives a vision of this full and final restoration. And he writes this in Revelation 21. Listen to this. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. You see, like Micah, John proclaims God's promise that a day of full restoration is coming, a day when God will dwell with his people in perfect communion and peace, where he will wipe away every tear from our eyes, where even death itself and mourning shall be no more. But this restoration, this full picture of peace and of justice, it's it's only possible because of the redemption that Christ came and brought. Look at verse 22 of Revelation 21. John writes, And I saw no temple in the city, For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. You see, even when this perfect restoration comes, the hill, the mountain of the Lord, it still remains empty. The temple is still gone. But in its place is something far greater. In its place is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The Lamb, the Son of God, who went to the cross and gave himself as a perfect sacrifice for our sins, to redeem us, to purchase us for God. 
Think about this. Even as we get to the new Jerusalem, as, as we get to this perfect restoration, John is telling us that, that Jesus Christ will still be remembered as the Lamb of our redemption. Because it is only through this redemption that we can receive this full restoration. It is only through this redemption in Christ that God is able to restore a people for himself, a people who will live with him for eternity in a renewed creation. This restoration comes through his redemption. And it includes people from all nations. Look at verses 23 to 34 here in Revelation. John writes, And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine upon it. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. See, God is promising that on this final day of revelation, the, God's promise to Micah will be fully fulfilled. The nations will walk by the light of the Lamb. People from every tribe and tongue and nation will be a part of this restored creation because they have trusted in the redemption that Christ came to bring. The restoration for the nations comes through our redemption in Christ. This is the promise. This is where everything is going. And we can live in the present. We can live in the present out of this future hope. In a world of division, disaster, and disappointment. In a world where it is so easy to get caught up in, in doom scrolling and despair. In the midst of all of this, the Bible gives us a promise of restoration and hope. It tells us, the Bible tells us that the box of God's promise is not empty. It's not empty, that his word has not failed. That the justice, the peace, the restoration we all long for, that it's coming. But it cannot be brought about ultimately by human effort or achievement. It won't be brought about by our, our human actions, by our religious observance, by our, our social action. Not that those things are bad. We have to see that this full and final restoration of our fallen world is only possible through the redemption of our perfect Savior. It is only in Him that we ourselves can be redeemed. It is only through Him that all of creation will finally be restored. We cannot find the, the longing of our hearts apart from the person and the work of Christ. But the good news the good news, the news that Christmas itself announces, is that this restoration has already begun. It started with the birth of a baby in Bethlehem. Because in Christ, light has broken into our darkness. Christ came and he was born and he lived and he died to purchase our redemption. And then he rose again to usher us into, to begin our restoration. And so we can live with this greater hope in the midst of the despair of the world. We can join with Christ to work to bring justice and peace to places of brokenness and destruction. In Christ, we can declare to the nations through our worship, through our work, through our welcome, even through our celebration of Christmas, that restoration comes through redemption. 
redemption. Let's pray together. Faithful Father, we thank you for how you have given us your word. We thank you for how you work, even through our failures, even through uh, the exile of your people, to preserve a remnant, to, uh, to refine a people through whom you brought our Savior into the world. We thank you for the gift of Christ, our Redeemer, who purchases us for you and who brings about a perfect restoration that we can uh, participate in now, that will one day be finally and fully fulfilled So Lord, help us to live in the present out of that future hope, to share with others the restoration that comes through redemption, to go through this Christmas season proclaiming the gift of grace, of peace that you have given us in your Son, in whose name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, let's respond by singing one final song together, so please stand and sing with us.
you to stick around in the community room across the hall for uh, cookies and hot chocolate and uh, we also want to invite you to come back next week on Christmas Eve as we uh, gather for worship at at 10:30 and then again at 6 p.m. Uh, we're excited to keep celebrating this season together as a church family uh, but as we go from here uh, let us go with this word of benediction for Romans 15 may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Amen. Go in peace.